Let's turn to the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, as we read verses 3 uh, through 6 this evening. 1 John 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And you'll find 1 John, as you are aware, following the letter to the Hebrews and First and Second Peter. Where John writes to us, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And we're going to stop there. May God indeed once more bless this passage of his word to all our waiting hearts. Now, anyone who has dealt with young Christians, new in the faith and new to the Christian life, will be aware of an experience that I think is fairly universal in whatever age the church may live and operate. At first, in the life of a young Christian, there is a season of great joy and exuberance because everything in that new world of the Christian life and faith is sparkling and real. And it seems as though the dews of heaven itself rest upon the young convert, the new professor of his faith or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But very soon afterwards, it may be weeks, it may be months, it may be days, but very soon after a new conversion, very often doubts begin to arise. And that early joy of Christian faith in Christ is somewhat tempered by those doubts and the beginnings of difficulties in the Christian way. And the new convert very often begins to ask himself or herself, has anything really changed after all? Because isn't it the same kind of temptations that are still besetting my way? Isn't it the same kind of character flaws that I see in myself? And I haven't completely changed, and it seems as though outwardly I haven't become an entirely new and transformed person. And that leads to the question inwardly, how can I know that I have come to know God? How can I know? but I have truly left the darkness of sin and of this world and come into the light and joy of God's presence. And it's exactly at that point, you see, that the letter of John meets us this evening. And the question is one that is not only relevant for the young Christian, I suggest to you, but is relevant for us at any stage of our Christian life and experience. How can I know that I do truly and in reality know God. And it is for that very purpose of giving assurance to the believer that John, as I say, has written this lovely book of First John. 
Now, last Sunday evening, we began, in a sense, to explore that theme of assurance as we looked at the first two verses of the second chapter of the book of John. And we saw that there are two grounds on which the Christian is assured of his salvation as he falls into temptation and sin or darkness comes upon his soul. God has given to us, John said, the written word, these things I write to you, that you do not habitually continue in sin. And alongside the written word, as we saw, John put the word incarnate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who has become the propitiation for the sins of God's people. Now we've come this evening to a further statement of the grounds of Christian assurance. And this takes us into the longer passage, verses 3 through 10 of the second chapter of First John. But because of the wealth and richness of this material, I think that we're making a wise decision this evening simply to confine ourselves to verses 3 through 6 that we read earlier on. But the theme and the basis of that whole section is the subject of Christian assurance. How do I know that I am in Christ? And this evening, as we're going to see in a moment, the basis of our assurance is whether we have the inward desire to do the will of God, to obey the commandments of our Heavenly Father, and so and thus to abide in Christ, whose name we have come to profess. In the words of the great preacher C.H. Spurgeon upon this passage, we are, he says, to make our calling and election sure by living forth these fruits that show us to be trees of the Lord's planting. And the question then before us, beloved, this evening is precisely this. Am I, are you, a tree of the Lord's planting? And the evidential assurance that we're going to see this evening to bring to our spirits the sense that our profession is real, that evidential assurance is not finally based upon our own attainments, but upon what God has done and is doing in our lives if we truly belong to him. Now, before I go on to the two grounds of assurance this evening, let us just look briefly at this whole section. You'll notice that there are three grounds in all. We're going to look at two of them this evening, and the third one, God willing, in two Sunday evenings' time when I return to the pulpit following my vacation. And each one of these tests or answers to assurance begins with the words, the man who says, or similar words. If you look at verse 3, the man who says that he, that, that he knows Christ but doesn't keep the commandments of God, that man is a liar and a deceiver. Verse 6, you notice the second phrase occurs. If we claim to live and abide in him, but we do not walk in the likeness to Christ, then clearly our profession is vain. And then in verse 9, and of course leading on to verse 10, if we claim to walk in the light yet hate our brother, 
then clearly our profession is false. So knowing God should lead us into obedience to God, first of all. Union with Christ, if we claim that, should lead us into likeness to Christ. And the third test for two Sundays from now is if indeed we claim to live in the light, then we should walk in love toward one another. Well, that's where we're going on these two Sunday evenings, God willing. Now, the two tests then tonight that are before us that should bring into the believer's heart an overwhelming sense of his assurance, the two tests are first that knowing God should imply obedience to his commands, and second that union with Christ should, should, should imply likeness to him. Now let's look together at these things that John is saying to us. First of all, that knowing God implies obedience to his commands. Look with me at verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands and so forth. Now there is so much here that I just want to take out three of the many strands that occur in verses 3, 4, and the first part of verse 5. Knowing God implies obedience to his commands. Now, the first of these strands is this. But the tenses that John uses in verse 3 and indeed throughout these verses are most important. Look at your Bible as you have it open in front of you this evening. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. What are the tenses? How do I know that I'm a Christian? That my claim to know God is real? How do I know that I know him and am not deceived? Well, the answer lies in the first instance, beloved, in the tenses that, that John uses. And the tenses are the here and now tenses, the present tenses. And you'll find as you look at all these verses, practically all of the verbs that John uses remarkably are in the present tense. And that's a very important test of whether my claim to be in Christ is a valid claim. Let me put it to you this way. We all come in this church this evening from very different backgrounds, don't we? As we're seeing in the Lord's Day services in the mornings, the three conversions of Acts 16 that were, in fact, representative conversions of what was happening when the apostolic gospel was being preached. And as you look at Lydia, and as you look at the slave girl, as we did this morning, and then as we look at the jailer a little later on this month, all of them were conversions out of profoundly different backgrounds. A lady of upper-class society, Lydia. A slave girl from the very bottom of society, the very dregs of society. A jailer who was middle-class, as we would say today. A solid, retired Roman soldier, we are led to believe. 
and their backgrounds were totally different, the one from the other. And when you think of our conversions today in this church, we've all come from very different backgrounds. We've all, moreover, come to Christ in very different ways. It was an earthquake that brought the jailer to faith in Christ, instrumentally speaking. It was the Lord gently opening the heart of Lydia to believe the exposition of Scripture. That's how she came to Christ. It was by the dramatic and powerful word of the Lord, exorcising the demon from within her, that the slave girl came to faith in Christ. But however we have come, John says, if we would know the experience of assurance of salvation, this is the test. However we have come, do you now live in obedience to the commands of God. Do you see what I'm saying to you? The present tense is being used. We know now that we have come to know him. How? By the fact that now we keep on keeping his commandments. It's the present tense, the here and now. And in the Greek present tense, there is usually the sense of continuance that we are keeping on keeping his commandments. As we'll see in a moment, you see, the ground for Christian assurance doesn't stop at an intellectualized knowledge of God. I have understood the doctrines of grace I have come to an understanding of the basics of the gospel. John 3.16 and the need for repentance and faith in Christ which is God's gift and the grace of God that undergirds the whole experience of salvation. Intellectually, I know it all. But that's not what John is saying. What he is saying is that you cannot profess to know God in a saving way and remain in daily disobedience. Now the second strand I want to draw out from these verses 3 through 5a is the emphasis that John gives upon the word knowing. Now look again at your Bible as it's open in front of you. It occurs once in verse 3, we know that we have come, and so on. And in verse 4, it occurs, and twice in verse 5. In verse 3, in fact, it occurs twice also. There is an emphasis in this passage upon knowing God. Now, I want to go further and say to you this evening that it's a key phrase throughout the book of First John. It occurs more than 40 times. If you go through this short letter of only five brief chapters and underline with a marker the number of times that this word occurs, you'll find that on every page, practically every verse, or so it seems, will be underlined and marked out. Now why? Because this is, what God, this is John's way of expressing what a Christian is. We so often speak of an experience of Christ. 
We so often speak of conversion or regeneration, and all of these are biblical terms. But the danger in some of our terminology today is that it becomes experience-centered. Because I walked up the aisle and made a profession of faith, of course I know that I'm a Christian. Because I sat reading the scriptures in my home and suddenly it seemed as though there was a heavenly light shining down upon the text in front of me. That's how I know that I'm a Christian. And beloved, what John is emphasizing by contrast is that eternal life rather resides not in an experience which may be mistaken but in a God-imparted knowledge of God in Christ. Now, isn't this the theme of his gospel as well in John chapter 17, where Jesus, in that great high priestly prayer of his, prays at the end of that prayer that they may know thee, I believe it's at the beginning of the prayer, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And you see what Jesus is doing is something very wonderful and very instructive for us. But this, he says, is the ultimate distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian. Not whether you've walked down the aisle as a result of an impassioned appeal to turn to Christ. But the distinction lies in this that God the Holy Spirit has revealed to your understanding the knowledge of the true God that is a life-changing experience, that they might know thee and the Lord Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The ultimate distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian And all through the New Testament scriptures you find this same emphasis upon coming to know God. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21, Paul says, Since by wisdom the world did not know God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Or in Galatians 4 verses 8 and 9, Paul says, Formerly you did not know God. But now, he goes on to say, that transforming change has come into your life and experience. Now, beloved, if you and I are to discover the means of Christian assurance and the way of Christian assurance, we discover not only the tenses of the Christian life, but we discover that the essence of being in Christ is that we know inwardly God has enlightened our minds in the knowledge of him, a knowledge that affects our daily actions and leads us into obedience to God. Well, the third strand that I want to draw out before we leave this first point is that John gives to us the evidence then of knowing God. Now look at the further verses. If we obey his commands, he who does not do his commands, verse 4, is a liar. If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete 
in him. Verse 5. In other words, John says to us, thirdly, that the certain evidence of truly knowing God is found in a new course of life and living. No longer self-pleasing, but pleasing God is the new inner motive of the Christian. So that you see, what John is describing is that God's work in regeneration is not only in giving us a new heart, but it lies in writing his laws into those new hearts, so that now in the believer there is a correspondence between the law of God and the deepest desires of the regenerate heart. Now, beloved, I want you to grasp that this evening. Because this is the difference between a true regeneration and one that is false and deceitful. The kind of experience we see so much of in our world today where the gospel in a defective way is being preached and it leads to a defective experience of Christ. The man who says, because I've walked down the aisle, because I've made a profession of faith, because I've become a member of the church, of course I'm a Christian. And what the scripture says is when God works in regeneration, there is a new heart, but there is a correspondence between the new heart and the deepest desire of the child of God to be in obedience to the commands of God. So that as the psalmist says in Psalm 27, you say, Lord, Seek my face. Thy face, O Lord, will I seek, is the psalmist's immediate response. Now do you see what I'm saying to you this evening? John is reminding us in his own way of Jesus' words in Matthew 7, verse 21 and following, where in that solemn declaration he reminds his hearers, not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, will be in my kingdom. But he that what? Does the will of my Father in heaven. To those others, Jesus says, in that day of judgment, I will say, in those words of solemn sentence, depart from me, for I never knew you. And John is reinforcing that heavenly lesson now, it's not perfect obedience that God is seeking in us because if that were the case, none of us would ever have assurance of salvation. And Calvin, in his comment upon this passage, is very wise. He says, not those who wholly satisfy the law of God uh, are those in mind, for no such instance can be found in the world. Rather, this text means those who desire to frame their lives in obedience to him. Now, beloved, surely that is where this first section leaves us this evening, but habitual disregard for God's commandments is incompatible with knowing him. The whole shape of our lives should be what become one of growing and increasing obedience 
to God's revealed will. What should possess the Christian soul is a hunger to be conformed to God's good pleasure. Let me ask you tonight, is that the direction of your life? Is that the desire of your heart? Do you habitually keep his commands? Not outwardly, but inwardly, saying again and again, however costly that obedience may be, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Does it matter to you, correspondingly, when you see others? living in disregard for the commandments of God? Does it grieve you at your heart when the Lord's day is being profaned? When others around you take his name in vain? When there is a despising of the church of God and the scriptures of God's word, are you grieved in your inmost soul? It's a test of whether you are in Christ. Do you correspondingly again obey whatever he says, whatever the cost, whatever the demand, whether your loss is great or your gain by it is also significant? Is your attitude to the word and ways of God, I am going to do it whatever it takes? Now that's what John is saying to us. There is the proof and the evidence of our being in Christ. And you notice at the end of, or the first part of verse 5, he says God's love is truly made complete in such a person as that. Why does he say so? Well, because it means that we are growing into maturity. He means our love for God is becoming complete, not as an emotional experience, we can sing choruses all day long, and it can be meaningless. But our love is growing into maturity for God when we say it is a joy to serve him. His love compels me to want to do his will, and every commandment of his, I know, is gilded with his glory expressed to us in the commandment and is designed to deepen my fellowship with him. You see, that is the mark of someone who is growing into maturity. The love of God, our love for God, is beginning to be perfected and completed in us when we are in that position. So you see what I've said to you, that it is no mere intellectual enlightenment divorced from holiness of life that John is speaking of, but rather an Obedient faith, that is what is reckoned as true knowledge of God. Well then, secondly, union with Christ implies likeness to him. And you have that in verse 5 at the end and verse 6. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now, it's interesting that the King James Version puts the first part of that verse I quoted along with the end of verse 5 as a conclusion to verse 5. And the NIV, clearly, by the colon you'll see after the first part of it, links it with verse 6 
And in my opinion, the NIV and the RSV are correct. This is how we, are, we know we are in him. How? Because whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. In other words, it is a second test of assurance that John is giving to us, that union with Christ implies likeness to him. Now, there are just two things that I want to share with you here, but the theme of this text is that the very life of the vine is found in the branches. Do I claim to be a Christian? Do I claim to experience newness of life? Then, not only must I be obedient to God's commandments, but I should know within myself the very life of Christ indwelling me also. Now what this does is in fact take us back into John chapter 15, the great imagery you remember at the beginning of the chapter where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. And it's interesting in that passage, and I've no time to expound upon it this evening, but if you look in John 15, and I urge you to do it when you go home this evening, you'll find there's a very interesting progression there. In John 15, verse 2, at the beginning, Jesus says, If you abide in me, as the branch abides in the vine, there will be fruit. And then at the end of verse 2 in John 15, he says, There will be more fruit as you continue to abide in me. And then finally, in verse 8 of John 15, he says there will be much fruit as a result of your abiding in me. Fruit, more fruit, much fruit. And all of this is possible only because the life of the vine is coursing through the branches and flourishing in those branches to the production of those luscious bunches of ripe and tender grapes. And therefore the theme of what John is saying to us is that if I claim to be in Christ, something of the fruitfulness that was in Jesus' life should be evidenced in mine. Now the second thing that I want to say to you from this verse is that we pay too little attention to the life of Jesus. We pay too little attention to the life of Jesus. Whoever claims to live in him, that is, to be a Christian, must walk as Jesus did. Now, how did Jesus walk? Jesus walked on earth, beloved, you remember, as a man in whose life God's law was magnified. There's no getting away from it. Wherever you look in the pages of the Gospels, wherever you turn to, the great message of the Gospels is that the law of God, the holy, righteous law of God, has been made honorable in the flesh of the man of Galilee. And what John is doing is, in a sentence, in a moment, like a flash picture, is giving to us the life of Jesus. As Jesus walked, he says, how did Jesus walk? In the days of his flesh, in Galilee and Nazareth and Judea. He walked as a man 
who did always those things that pleased his heavenly Father. Now when you think of it, everywhere he went, everything he thought, everything he said, everything he did, was always the things that pleased his heavenly Father. Can you think of one instance where Jesus was out of line? I am often out of line as a pastor. You, if you are true to yourself, are often out of line as a Christian man or woman. Jesus was never out of line. A perfect reflection of the character of God, the very embodiment in a human life of all that the Ten Commandments of the Heavenly Father spoke. The living embodiment of perfect righteousness. And you notice this is not legalism. This is the life of Christ serving his Father in a holy love. Now that is what John is bringing before us here. That if it is the nature of our head to live in this way, how much more should it be the nature of the members of his body underneath the head to live in that way? Just as it is the nature of our hands and feet and legs to obey our bodily head, so, if we are in Christ, we should be walking as Jesus walked. Now, do you see what I'm saying? This is the test of our behavior does our life please God? You see, again, John is emphasizing assurance of salvation doesn't come in testimonies. The more I hear testimonies, the more, in a sense, I doubt what the person is saying because words are cheap. But the test is in the validity of our experience of Christ. Do we claim to know him? then is the life of Christ coursing through our lives? Are we walking as Christ walked? I seek not mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Well, in conclusion this evening, here surely is genuine assurance of salvation. Is it possible? Yes, John tells us it is, but never in a vacuum. And it's not based upon an experience of ours, a profession of faith that we have made, a testimony, testimony that we've given at some Christian meeting or gathering. It's based upon what I am doing now, at this very moment, where the fruit is present day by day and hour by hour that my loves and my lusts and my desires and my habits have been changed. And now I want to live in obedience to him. And upon what I am now, as well as what I do, saved by his sacrificial death and finding a new life is coursing, as it were, through my veins, the very life of Christ himself. Beloved, do you claim to love God this evening? Do you claim to know Christ? Do you claim to experience his grace? Then these are the marks that you and I should see abounding within us. And this is the direction in which we should be moving.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this section. We thank you for John's realism, an assurance that is possible, but is not on the basis of cheap grace, is not easy believism, is rigorous and tough, but is loving as well. And we pray, our Father, that these signs might indeed be evidenced in our lives, even today, for Jesus' sake. Amen.